Hey guys, welcome back. And wherever you're listening, I hope you're staying safe. Right now, I'm reaching you from the past here in Washington State. The date is Wednesday, the 25th of March, 2020. And we are sitting here two days after our governor has ordered all of us to stay home and stay healthy. It's just another consequence of this novel coronavirus that has swept through impacting the world recently. And it got me thinking, we've seen some extraordinary consequences. We've seen economic downfall unlike anything else, at least in my lifetime. And I got to wondering, how is it affecting survivors of domestic violence? So it's some research. In part one of this episode, we talked to a local PhD candidate who specializes in studying viruses to talk about what exactly is COVID-19 and why are we doing what we're doing? Why the isolation, why staying at home, all that stuff. In part two, we explore the impact on survivors. So wherever you're joining me from, stay safe and let's do this. It's a pleasure to be here. So can you please um, just give us a really quick um, like summary of who you are? What's your background? Sure. So um, I'm Emily. Um, I'm working on my PhD at studying viruses. Um, I'm at a local research institution right around the area. So we're hearing all the up-to-date information about uh, what's going on on this pandemic. All right. Thank you for joining me. So the goal of this is to basically establish what is this pandemic and sort of why our, actually why the world has taken the steps it has in order to, I guess, what's the phrase, flatten the curve, so to speak. So let's begin with just what even is this? What is COVID-19? Absolutely. So um, to start off with, I wanted to clarify some terminology. So um, the virus that's... Uh, causing all of this infection um, has a different term than what we're using right now. So the virus name is called SARS-CoV-2. Um, it's called SARS because it's related to the SARS virus that caused an outbreak in 2002. And COV is standing for um, coronavirus, which is the family that this virus is part of. Um, in terms of COVID-19, that's the disease name. So that's causing these common symptoms of fever, tiredness, and dry cough. Um, but to be clear here, some people are asymptomatic, meaning that they don't develop any symptoms, and that's why we have this clear delineation between the virus name, because people are infected with SARS-CoV-2, but they may not present disease, which is the COVID-19. Um, and of course, some people, uh, as we know, have symptoms that are very severe and can lead to respiratory failure, so this is why this is um, uh, such a great issue. And can you please clarify, so I feel like there's been a lot of misinformation and conflicting statements about who exactly is at risk for this. For example, I've seen articles that state it's only if you're above 65. I've seen information about people who are vaping who are at risk. You hear about people who are young as 18 who are dying from this virus. So who is the most at risk here? Yeah, that's... Um 
uh, an interesting question given that um, a lot of the information being presented right now is sort of uh, very rapid um, and uh, we don't have uh, lots of information yet. So um, uh, I think the main most vulnerable group is probably groups that are uh, older in age, generally above um, the 80 and above group is the most at risk, but um, older, uh, slightly younger ages than that still are vulnerable as well, um, and especially also those who are immune compromised as well. Um, but that's not to say that other people can't be infected by the virus, which is why um, we're, uh, there are many um, uh, things in place, policies in place right now that are really stringent. So, for example, kids are uh, 19 and younger um, uh, can be infected and are many times infected with the virus, uh, but are not presenting symptoms, um, which is why a lot of the schools have been shut down. Um, and uh, people of ages anywhere sort of in the middle can also be infected. Um, and it's not to say that everyone sort of in the middle age range will not present with uh, severe symptoms either. There are definitely been many cases where um, median in age individuals will be, uh, um, it will be necessary for them to go be hospitalized and go into the ICU as well. They just tend to have a higher uh, chance of recovery uh, because they're younger. And where did this even come from in the first place? Because I believe it didn't even exist until um, like early December of last year, correct? Absolutely. Um, so the virus, um, so uh, going back to during late November and early December, um, there was this initial outbreak of uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, scientists believe that it started in the city of Wuhan in China. Um, there, this, there was a spread of an infectious disease from non-human animals to humans, which is called a zoonotic transmission that occurred, um, uh, leading to this COVID-19 pandemic that we have now. Um, people suspect that this outbreak started in a wet market in Wuhan, but this is still undergoing investigation. So you hear people saying that this is from selling live animals. I think that's was it. Is that true? Yeah, absolutely. So we have evidence. Um, we, well, we meaning many other scientists who are doing this great work, um, have sequenced the viral genome of SARS-CoV-2 and found it to be most related to other bat coronaviruses, suggesting that's where um, they derive from. But that doesn't mean we know where the reservoir of the virus is right now. So if this virus can spread from humans to animals, would you say it was only a matter of time before there was this transmission? Or was this going like, like, was it going to happen regardless of what we did, or could this have been prevented by shutting down live animal markets or things like that? Yeah, um, it's hard to predict these kinds of things. I think eventually these are things are about bound to happen. There are many other spillover events that have occurred for other viruses as well, from animals and humans. One could argue that as humans sort of spread across globally and go into um, regions of the world that weren't accessed before, there's a higher likelihood of this transmission to occur, but these are uh, animal-to-human transmissions are not new in any way and will happen again in the future. That's a scary thought. Oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Okay, so that is what the virus is and where it comes from. But how does it transmit? I think all of us were shocked at how quickly the entire world found itself responding to these cases. And I don't remember how many cases there are currently, but there have been a number of deaths here in Seattle. So how does it transmit? Absolutely. So actually, I should correct uh, from, uh, instead of spreading a lot of panic, these transmission events that I'm saying from humans to animals, uh, sorry, animals to humans, um, will occur in the future. And a lot of what we need to do now is to be prepared. And as long as we're prepared for these things, then um, we can kind of get through these things as we will through this pandemic as well. So to actually answer your question, um, how this <laughs> Thank you. Um, so this, uh, the goal here I want to mention is don't panic. That's not going to do anyone any good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so how does it transmit? So um, SARS-CoV-2 transmits, um, we now know, can spread person to person. Um, the primary spread is through respiratory droplets that are produced when an infected person coughs or sneezes. So this is why people keep on telling um, telling you to cover your cough and sneezes, and especially don't do that with your hands. Use the bend in your elbow, use a handkerchief, um, but not on your hands, which you will be touching other things and spread uh, the virus in that way. I, I feel like that's something that I heard growing up is don't sneeze into your hands. But is that not a cultural, is that a cultural knowledge already? Um, I, I would hope people do that generally because flu can also be transmitted. You're always also like coughing into your hands, but um, this is a good time to remind everyone to continue doing this practice and to do it if they haven't been already. So you mentioned um, why it's important to not cough your hands and then touch an object, but can you really pick up this virus from touching a surface that an infected person touched previously? Yeah, so there's definitely high potential for that. Um, scientists have found that this virus, um, and they did this test in a controlled lab setting, but they found that the virus can stay on various different surfaces um, for different amounts of time. And so uh, it's highly recommended that you should not be touching other things and then touching your face, such as your nose, eyes, and mouth, which um, can allow for transmission. This is why we also recommend you to wash your hands really often and properly for 20 seconds at least, um, because there is definitely that potential. Uh, does wearing a mask help? Um, it's a good question. So um, wearing a mask can be helpful, but it's not the only effective way for you to protect yourself and others. So things that we're already talking about that really I know seem super mundane, but can really make a difference are frequent hand washing, covering your cough not with your hands, and, and then also maintaining really far physical distance from others are all really simple ways to be really protective. And as masks right now, um, there's a global shortage of masks and you're not wasting a precious resource. Um, so I should also clarify though, right now, if you are ill or if you're looking after someone ill, please do use those masks. Um, but Again, we really want to make sure healthcare workers around the world who are really at the front lines of everything um, are protected. So you're using a mask, make sure you're wise about it. You mentioned distancing. Currently, I believe um, they say six feet apart at all times. Why six feet? Do they just 
pick this number at random, or is it actually a, a number that has meaning to it? Yeah, it sounds pretty arbitrary. So don't it get does, it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, Walk around with a stick, and if you come within <laughs> six feet of my stick, I will hit you with it. Pack off Corona. <laughs> exactly. That's kind of what it feels like. Um, so before I actually answer your question, I do want to clarify that we call it social distancing, but the focus here is on the physical distancing. So we're not asking people to, you know, don't talk to people, don't socially isolate yourself, just physically be farther away from people. Um, so to give you a sense, six feet is about twice the length of the average person's extended arms. Um, and uh, I don't have, know the scientific evidence on why exactly six feet, but I'm guessing that this calculation is based on how far droplets, which this virus can travel in, um, when you're sneezing and coughing can travel. Um, but I think like like we were saying and joking, like getting a tape measure and measuring out six feet and being distant from people is really not what we're really suggesting. At the end of the day, like any number of feet is really too many. Your safest best and best solution is really just to stay home um, if that's a possibility. So I'm really struck by this because I feel like all of these precautions you're recommending are the same ones we hear every year when it comes to flu season. And in fact, when this virus first began making news, there were many comparisons, whether reasonable or not, to flu season. However, I feel like flu season is never taken in as much seriousness as COVID-19. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so um, I think it's a little unfair to compare to flu, which I know a lot of people have done, um, because uh Flu is sort of a different beast here. So SARS-CoV-2 is a novel virus. We really don't know a lot of information. We are also still learning a lot about flu as well. But COVID-19 is completely, or sorry, excuse me, SARS-CoV-2 is completely novel. And so um, there's a lot of things that we can't predict. Um, we don't know if there's seasonality to it like the flu does. Um, and so we are um, extremely cautious because there are a lot of, extra unknowns compared to usual, but there's also this uh, very uh, unfortunate um, circumstance where I was kind of mentioning people can uh, be infected with the virus and not show symptoms, um, and uh, because, and a lot of people can also be shedding virus prior to showing symptoms as well, and so that makes this virus spread a lot easier compared to flu, whereas um, if someone, say, has the flu, save a runny nose, they know right away they can stay at home, isolate, and uh, that's a really strong preventative measure. But we don't necessarily have that luxury with um, this SARS-CoV-2 um, virus. But, but even despite the differences, I feel like every flu season, uh, culturally, there are many people who still will go to work when they're coughing, when they have fever, they'll still send their kids to daycare, and the flu transmits very easily because of that. Do you believe that as a culture, if we took things like the flu more seriously, this virus would not have transmitted as easily? Um, you're saying for this, uh, if we took more stringent measures for flu, whether or not that would transmit? Sorry. So essentially what I'm asking is every year when the flu season hits, right, you 
you have people who don't get their flu vaccine. They will get sick, but they will still go to work. They will still send their kids to daycare when their kids are sick. They won't wash their hands. They won't sneeze into their elbows. And it seems to be a cultural thing. Oh, it's flu season. It doesn't seem to have, it doesn't seem to be taken seriously. Do you believe if as a culture we were in the habit of taking the flu seriously and taking these precautionary measures, this new novel virus would not have spread nearly as much? Yeah, so there's um, two major steps to all of this. So um, I will say flu is, again, a little bit different. So there um, are flu vaccines that are uh, given every year. And so even if people aren't always doing their best practices, even if they aren't necessarily getting the vaccine, and if enough of people are getting those vaccines, um, they may we may have herd immunity to it, and also um, many people, uh, because flu has been around for so long, are getting exposed to flu. Um, they may have previous immunity to it. Um, for this virus, um, uh, SARS-CoV-2, um, there are uh, a lot of, like I said, a lot of unknowns, and uh, the initial steps when this outbreak was happening um, was. Um, it would have been most vital for us to do what they call containment, and um, but we're sort of past that stage as there has been a lot of community transition of this virus at this point. So we're doing a lot of mitigating stages to try and at least um, sort of slow down everything. Um, and uh, you mentioned sort of this flatten the curve uh, measure. And so we're trying to take a lot of preventative measures at this point um, to try not to make it worse impacts I think that I can see right now are just the immediate ones and I can't even fathom the long-lasting effects it's going to have. Um, hey, I can probably confidently say every single person has been impacted by this pandemic, whether it's in the context of um, work or layoffs, um, uh, students who are trying to figure out how they're going to get an education or how they're going to have their next meal. Um, there's, I, yeah, I, I'm sure the list is endless that I'm missing. So two days ago, our governor, Jan Salee, issued the stay home, stay healthy order. What is the goal of this two-week isolation period? Yeah, so this order, um, and this has been an order that has been uh, issued in many other uh, states as well. And the goal here is to cut down on in-person interactions as a means to slow the transmission of the virus spread um, and also not overwhelm the health system. Uh, so um, I was kind of alluding to this flatten the curve sort of um, phrase that many people I'm sure have heard now. And to be clear, it's a preventative measure that is um, that we're trying to issue. And the idea here is so if people are self-isolating, there's less transmission of the virus. That means um, we're not going to over, we won't, we'll hopefully have fewer cases um, of people going to be hospitalized because there's a finite amount of beds and resources and healthcare workers at hospitals. And so um, if we keep the numbers fairly low, they will be able to manage everybody who is coming in with COVID-19, but also people who are in hospitals for other reasons as well. And if we can sort of maintain that status quo, and I don't have exact numbers for any of this, but 
um, we, if we can maintain the status quo, then um, hopefully uh, we'll be able to treat everybody and have enough ventilators and protective equipment for um, our healthcare workers to be able to um, manage uh, this pandemic. Everyone right now is wondering, is this going to get worse or have we already seen the worst of it? And we're wondering, when can we go back to what we think is normal? Are there any thoughts from people who are actually working on the front lines about this? Yeah, I I wish I had an answer for you there. And based on what I've heard from uh, people who are modeling this, it's it's hard to tell. I also realize it's really challenging because it's this really restrictive order in place right now, and we may not immediately see the effects. It may take a couple of weeks before we see, are we sort of at the peak of the curve? Have we gone past the peak? Um, uh, we can see that right now um, in China, at least in the Wuhan area, they've hopefully gone, uh, seen the peak and gone past it. Um, although uh, they're slowly trying to get back into normal. And I know we're taking different measures from them, so it's really hard to compare to. But um, long story short, is I don't have an answer for you. Um, hopefully having such a restrictive order uh, right now for two weeks will um, be helpful, but just too hard to say right now, I think. How do you think this is going to impact our community? And have you seen social impacts already from this novel virus? One of the things that I really want to emphasize to people is that um, right now uh, is a time to be really compassionate and kind to each other. Uh, there's been... Um, it's been a challenging time where uh, people can be blamed uh, for causing this virus. And um, the fact of the matter is this virus knows no ethnicity, no nationality, no gender. And um, uh, this is something that impacts all of us. And so um, this is a time to be really compassionate with each other. Do you have anything else you'd like to add? There's a couple things I just want to remind people is that um, there's a lot of information. You've also alluded to this as well. There's a lot of information out there, and it's really, really important to think critically about this information. Um, we don't have a cure or a vaccine for this virus right now, so um, it's uh, really um, important to stay up to date, but really evaluate all the information that's coming in. Um, and uh, also that everyone right now can really make a difference to slow the transmission. Really, each and every person makes a big difference. Um, so like I said before, it's important to be kind to others right now. People are really anxious and stressed, and um, that does not mean that's the time to take that out on people for whatever reason. Um, and also wash your hands. <laughs> yeah, wash your hands and stay home. <laughs> if that's possible, obviously that's not a possibility for everyone. If you if you can do it for yourself, do it for somebody's other somebody else's grandmother, do it for someone who's trying to 
battle cancer out there right now because they really can't catch a break and COVID-19 is the last thing they want to be able to deal with. Um, if you can't motivate yourself to do it for yourself, do it for somebody else. All right. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your hectic schedule to talk to us. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. So now we know what SARS-CoV-2 is and why we've taken these specific precautionary measures. But how do these affect survivors of domestic violence? In my opinion, this is a worst-case scenario. Katie Ray Jones, the CEO of the National Domestic Violence Hotline, stated, We know that any time an abusive partner may be feeling a loss of power and control, and everyone's feeling a loss of power and control right now, it could greatly impact how victims and survivors are being treated in their homes. I mean, think about it. The situation even before this pandemic was bad. Now add in stress financial instability, and people being cooped up and with cabin fever, and it's a recipe for an explosion. But how bad will this be? And what will it look like? So here in Washington State, we have what's called the Washington State Coalition Against Domestic Violence, also called WISCADIV. They are the leading voice against domestic violence in our state. The Director for Public Affairs, Kelly Starr, gave an interview with Bustle recently, stating, quote, this is impacting survivors in every way you can imagine and every way you can't. This isn't a new phenomenon. The World Health Organization notes a consistent rise in interpersonal violence following any natural disaster. Disaster brings crisis, brings economic turbulence, which has consequences for everyone, especially survivors. Again, Star from Wiskadiv has stated, quote, one of the things we're really worried about is that right now there are so many economic impacts. And when someone has limited access to money, to housing, to affordable ways to get childcare, all of those things give people fewer options to live safe and independently of an abuser. Our country saw a similar pattern after 9-11. And again, after Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico in 2017, one organization even saw a 62% increase in requests for support. And now, during this crisis, many organizations are bracing for an increase, either right now or after the pandemic has begun to subside. And the effect of this novel pandemic is not only reflected in the volume of calls, but the type of calls. The CEO of the National Domestic Violence Hotline Katie Ray Jones, gave an interview with Jezebel where she stated, quote, while we're not currently seeing an increase in volume coming into the organization, we expect that might happen. She goes on, quote, we've started to hear from survivors whose abusive partners are leveraging SARS-CoV-2 to further isolate, increase fear, and manipulate. So let's break down how that could happen using the Stay Home, Stay Healthy initiative here in Washington state, essentially quarantining at home to stay safe and closing non-essential businesses. For survivors, home isn't necessarily safe. 
isolation is a favorite tool for abusers. And this global pandemic creates circumstances abusers can use to escalate controlling behavior, especially if their victims are now out of work or working from home. Usual escapes, like going to the gym, meeting with friends at a coffee shop, things like that, are no longer considered essential activities. If a survivor was looking to escape and it using their abuser's absence at work to plan or safely access resources or using their time at work to do these things, that's no longer an option. Travel restrictions, including flying and public transportation, can also hinder a survivor's ability to leave. Even things like calling a helpline when your abuser is in the same room or within earshot is a risk, one many survivors won't take, for good reasons. And then there's the economic impact from closing so many businesses. Marginalized communities are going to be especially impacted. People all over are losing their jobs, and those who do may end up relying on their abuser to support them and their families. Victims may end up returning to their abusers because that's their only option, that or become homeless. And victims may also end up relying on abusers to care for their children because schools and daycare centers are closed. Even things like interviews and looking for jobs has been put on hold. So survivors seeking to find employment to gain financial independence to rebuild their lives, to leave, well, that is no longer an option. For survivors who still have jobs, their abuser may prevent them from going to work, citing potential exposure as an excuse. We have already discussed how financial instability is one of the biggest factors when victims are deciding if they can leave an abusive relationship. The economic impacts of SARS-CoV-2 will further escalate this. Women's shelters are being impacted. Before the pandemic, many were already stressed for resources and funding. SARS-CoV-2 will only further stress these systems. Some shelters may be full. Others may slow or even stop their intake process. Even if shelters are open, certain programs, including group therapy or support groups, may be canceled. And survivors may choose to leave shelters to return to their abusers because they fear being exposed, or they just stay home and deal with the abuse rather than risk being exposed. Here's another. Even seeking medical assistance after an abusive incident is more limited. Here in Washington state, let's say you call with cold symptoms, seeing if you can come in to see a doctor. You may be directed to go to a certain urgent care facility that will then turn you away in person because they have switched to virtual care. Now replace cold symptoms with being strangled or dealing with a concussion. Imagine the emotional blow that would be to work up the courage to seek help and then to be turned away, to be rejected, not even taking into account the hassle and the planning to find that one facility you were directed to. Ray Jones mentioned in a call to the National Domestic Violence Hotline, a survivor reported, quote, their partner had strangled them the day before, and the advocate said they could hear it in the voice that they had clearly been strangled, but the person said they were afraid of going to the hospital because they didn't want to get exposed. 
Here are a few more examples from the National Domestic Violence Hotline. These are calls their advocates have received and have posted on their website. The first one says, A chatter mentioned that the abuser was using the virus as a scare tactic to keep the survivor away from their kids. A caller said the abuser was using SARS-CoV-2 as a scare tactic so that they wouldn't visit family. One last one. A healthcare professional still living with her abuser called and said they were physically abused that night because their abuser was sure they were trying to infect them with SARS-CoV-2. A few more examples of how SARS-CoV-2 is specifically being used against survivors. Abusive partners may withhold items like disinfectants or hand sanitizers. Abusive partners may share misinformation about the pandemic to control or frighten survivors or prevent them from seeking appropriate medical attention if they have symptoms, real or those of the common cold. Abusive partners may withhold insurance cards, threaten to cancel insurance, or prevent survivors from seeking medical attention if they need it. And lastly, abusers may threaten to kick survivors out of the house so they will become infected in order to manipulate them. If this sounds familiar, either in your own relationship or someone you know, I encourage you, reach out to the National Domestic Violence Helpline or a local advocacy group. Isolation and social distancing is the norm these days, but we shouldn't stop supporting each other. In fact, do the opposite. Reach out. Wiskadev has a friends and family resource guide. I'll attach it in the show notes along with other resources, but I will also summarize it here. Basically, be willing to show up and show support. You don't need to be an expert or have all the answers. Just being there, being available, is what can help a survivor the most. Wiskadev recommends these three things. One, ask a question. Two, listen up. And three, stay connected. The National Domestic Violence Helpline recommends you have a safety plan during this time and actually during any other time. A safety plan is a great tool, whether you're planning on staying with your relationship, if you're planning on leaving, or if you've already left. A safety plan is personalized. It's a plan that includes ways to remain safe, and it will vary based on your specific relationship. So if you want more help planning one, please call them. Some basic ways to safety plan. Have all your documents like driver's license, medication, extra money in a specific location that you know where it is and it's easy to access in case you need to leave in a hurry. Some survivors have a code word where they can call or text a family member or a friend that activates a safety plan or activates this person calling them, calling the police if that is an option or intervening somehow, things like that. And these things may seem obvious, yeah, but in moments of crisis, your brain might not function the same way as when you're calm, you're full of adrenaline, you're shaking, it might be hard to think clearly. So having all these plans laid out in advance are there to protect you in those stressful moments. The National Domestic Violence Helpline also advises, because at this time there might be limited shelter availability, 
Consider alternatives, such as staying with family or friends, staying in motels, even sleeping in your vehicle. Be mindful of good hygiene. Wash your hands regularly, avoid touching your face, and minimize contact with surfaces that other people have been in contact with. The National Domestic Violence Helpline also recommends having a safety plan in place. Irregardless of this crisis or not, having one is a really great way to stay safe in your relationship, whether you're staying there for the moment, planning on leaving, or even after you leave. For allies, it's hard when we see people we love being hurt. And this one is for everyone, survivors and allies, and just everyone who's listening. This is a stressful time. Take care of yourself. It feels like right now the world is ending and everything is against us. So make sure wherever you are, you take time for yourself. You do anything you can to make yourself feel better. And for you allies out there, no, you can't make decisions for everyone. Check in on people you love. Encourage them to practice their self-care, prioritize themselves, and remind them they have people who love and support them. So once again, wherever you are, thanks for listening. If you want to reach us, email us at thedvdiscussion at gmail.com. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at The Diva Discussion. We're also on TikTok at The Diva Discussion as well. Wherever you are, stay safe, stay home, and I'll see you next time. If you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence, please call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. You can also visit their website, thehotline.org. If you identify as an abuser or a word you might be an abuser, please call the helpline as well. They'll be able to help you. Please remember, you're not alone.